Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Carrie Marr is the author of All You Have to Do is Call. She is also the USA Today bestselling author of The Paris Bookseller, The Girl in White Gloves, The Kennedy Debutante, and under the name Carrie Majors, this is not a writing manual, notes for the young writer in the real world. She holds an MFA from Columbia University and lives with her daughter and dog in a leafy suburb west of Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss All You Have to Do is Call. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Does anybody ever like just sing the next line? <laughs> and you I'll mean, be there. 
anyway. not yet, okay. but you know, events are to come. So fingers crossed. For yeah, that. there you go. Hopefully someone better than me at singing. <laughs> <laughs> or, and believe me, no one wants to sing the song. <laughs> okay. All you have to do is call. Tell listeners what this book is about, please. So this book is a novel that is loosely based on the women of the real-life Jane Collective who operated an underground women's health clinic in Chicago before Roe. And they they offered, you know, safe, inexpensive abortions among other women's health services. They offered pap smears and some birth control counseling and some STD testing. But really what they became known for was the the safe abortions that they provided. And they started as a referral service in the late 60s. And they gradually sort of, they took over the process to offer the abortions themselves. So it was this women helping women, you know, health organization. And when my novel opens, and I, I sort of took the idea of the Jane Collective and set it in Chicago and used some of the milestone moments of Jane, but made my characters entirely made up. So these women are figments of my imagination. They are not based on the real women. And I I always want to flag that for people because my first three historical novels were biographical fiction. You know, they were about Grace Kelly and Sylvia Beach who were real women. So the characters in this novel are not not real. (laughs) You pointed out in the note that there were originally, I guess, seven and or eight, and now there are seven women. And so it wasn't exactly the same and all of that. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so for people who are versed in Jane lore, I did in my in the author's note is like the ultimate mea culpa yeah. for historical novelists. It's like here are all the ways in which I didn't follow the historical. <laughs> but like, if you were to check my facts, these would not align. <laughs> and you know, I did it on purpose. Yes. So anyway, I went to a, a the historical novel society conference a few years ago, and the keynote speaker was Dolan Perkins Valdez, and she gave this amazing um, speech and about you know how we all do our homework and and we're we are you know our conscientious writers, but in the end, we are going to make shit up. <laughs> <laughs> and like the room like stood up and cheered. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. That's so awesome. So what drew you to this topic? What drew you to this, the Jane Collective? How did you, and yeah. Yeah, so, you know, this is such an interesting question because of course this book is entering this very unfortunate and weird moment in the history of reproductive justice post-Dobbs, a year post-Dobbs. But I actually got the idea for it way back in 2018, like the before times in many ways. I was driving to meet a friend for a movie and I was listening to NPR as I usually do if I'm not listening to an audiobook. And I heard this amazing NPR sort of like narrative news story about the women of the Jane Collective. And like, as they were talking about the story, I just went, what? They did. They did what? Because <laughs> you know, part of the what is remarkable about the the real life women of Jane is that they were women, very young women actually, with no special medical training, who learned to give this one procedure, and to to women in their hours of need, right? And so, this was just really remarkable to me. I mean, I was like, what? Like you know, like someone like me <laughs> did this. And I, you know, I stopped the car and immediately was like, has anyone written about them? You know, you fire up Amazon and you're like looking for other novels and no one had, you know, the cursory search I did at the time. And 
I just, I knew I had to write about them. And it was, it was a journey, you know, from that moment to this moment. It does, you know, in some ways it doesn't seem like a lot of time, but it felt like a lot of time as I was living it. You know, at that time, The Kennedy Debutante, my first historical novel was about to come out. I was working on my second historical novel. So, you know, I, I didn't know how I was going to get to like write this really pretty different kind of book. But here I am. I feel really, really grateful and lucky that we're here now. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, one of the things in addition to, you know, the abortions themselves and that whole sort of subplot and all, not subplot, plot, I mean, what am I talking about? But I feel like there's this undercurrent of desire within a marriage that I found really interesting where women and men, maybe their feelings are not as aligned after several years of marriage or is this person cheating? Is this person not cheating? Like, why is this person paying attention to me? Why isn't this person paying attention to me? What can I do? What am I doing wrong? All of this self-doubt that I, I don't feel like we get enough of necessarily in fiction of, you know, for long married people, how they feel about, you know, all the sexuality involved in that. So tell me a little more about, about that, because I found that to be very interesting. Oh, thank you for asking me about this. You know, as I'm 48, I was married for a long time and I, I've had, I've, you know, I, I've been divorced for about five and a half years at this point and I've had subsequent relationships and I've, you know, I have married friends and I have, you know, long married friends at this point and I have women, other women friends who have been single and partnered and broken up. And so I feel like over the last 10 years, especially I've had some really fascinating conversations about what sex is life in midlife and and the like the truth of that and and you know one of the 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 emerging themes and i was so happy when the on their podcast you can do hard things also mm-hmm. was really upfront about this you know being in, being the woman in the marriage and being the one who is more amorous than your husband which we're not socialized to feel is the the quote unquote right way right and so that was a dynamic i really wanted to explore in this novel and i and i got to do that with in the um patty matt marriage and you know and then obviously so i knew that that was going to be a component of their story i don't want to say too much about that because i don't want to give away any spoilers but there was I think an easy plot out that I could have taken mm-hmm. in that marriage that I didn't want to take mm-hmm. because I see that so much in fiction mm-hmm. um, and, and all media really. And I, I really wanted it to be feel different and feel like a different kind of exploration of, you know, romantic sexual love in a long ter- long-term relationship. So that was Patty and Matt. And then we have, you know, Veronica and Doug who are having a different set of issues. You know, she's pregnant for most of the book, which, you know, presents its own set of, you know, romantic issues. Um, but then, of course, they're they're having like real meaningful disagreements about, mm-hmm. about the work she's doing while she's pregnant. And I think, you know, one of the challenges that I ran into in exploring all of these relationships was you know, how to make them satisfying to a 21st century reader without being anachronistic. Mm-hmm. You know, so these characters don't have the therapy speak that we have. They don't have, you know, the benefit of all the podcasts and all the things that we listen to about adult relationships. And so I'm like, okay, so how do I do that? So, you know, there were a lot of drafts, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for this reason and others of this novel. I can't imagine. I mean, there's so many different characters and viewpoints and relationships and 
interweaving stories and perspectives and, you, you know, you bounce from rooting for this character to that character. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to pull this off. It's <laughs> It was hard. I'm not going to lie. So, you know, my my so my first three historical novels were one character, you know, mm-hmm. one central character. So it was one narrator. And in, in Grace Kelly, it was it was a dual timeline. But mm-hmm. yeah, I hadn't juggled three points of view ever. I have five unpublished novels before before really? the debutante. Yeah, I always like to flag that for people because I don't I don't want to ever come across as like I'm the like what people say the 20 year overnight success. <laughs> you know, I wrote my first unpublished novel in the fifth grade. You know, I wrote and wrote and wrote. And after college, I I wrote and I wrote three novels. And, you know, they got me various things along the way. I got into graduate school with one of them. I got my first agent with another one of them. So, but none of them sold until Kennedy. And so, and that was the sixth novel that I had written. But this was the, actually, the very first novel I wrote out of college had three points of view, but I didn't braid them together. So it was it was really a new challenge for me, but it was fun. I mean, really, you know, with every you're a writer, you don't want to do the same thing with every book, right? You want to set new challenges for yourself. You want it to feel fresh and exciting. And so juggling the three characters in this case was kind of the thing for this novel. Very cool. Love that. And thank you for sharing that about your past because it can be quite deceiving when people see overnight successes and all of that. I feel like sometimes when people ask me, some of the main takeaways from this podcast, that is one of the things, is that you should never expect your first novel to sell. Like the first novel is teaching yourself how to write a novel, period. That's it. The second is like how to write it better. (laughs) And the third is like, maybe this could be good. Like sometimes you can sell the third one, but like everyone is practice and don't expect it to be the one. Like how could it be? You know, you have to have all this. I've written a bunch of novels that are tucked away and... I mean, it's really, it's such an important message. I don't think, honestly, published writers can reinforce this enough Mm -hmm. because there are enough stories of like the lawyer who wrote their first novel and, you know, get it by getting up at five in the morning and then they sold it. You know, that it's not like that never happens. It's just not actually the norm. Mm -hmm. Most people toil away either. (laughs) I don't understand these writers because I'm not one of them, but I (laughs) friends who have like toiled away on the same novel for 10 years and then sold that. Mm -hmm. I could never do that. (laughs) Um, I, so, so I spent those 10 years writing three novels, right. Mm -hmm. And, and trying out a bunch of different genres and in sort of like seeing what felt right to me and none, no word, no word was wasted. You know, every, every single word is a learning experience. You're, you're, you know, as you said, it's, you're learning how to write a novel. It's an apprentice novel. But I remember, you know, I was, when I was 23 years old, writing that first novel. And when somebody said that to me, I flipped out. I was like, no, it's not. Oh yeah. I was like, no, no, no. Mine's, mine's good though. (laughs) Until it, you know, until I was like racked with insecurity about it, but you know, it's that curious tension. Yeah. Well, it, it just is what it is. The the six novels that you set aside, also historical fiction? Like, did you always gravitate to that? No. So Kennedy was my first go at historical fiction. And it's, it's totally amazing to me that it took so long for me to figure out that I should try historical fiction. I know my first, my first novel was a serious work of literary fiction. Mm-hmm. 
I wrote right out of college. And then I went to graduate school. That that novel got me into graduate school. So I went to graduate school. I got an MFA in fiction writing. And I like wound up like rebelling against like having to only read Philip Roth and, you know, Don DeLillo and everyone. I was like, I'm going to write a romance novel. So I did. I took one summer, I read a bunch of romance novels and I wrote one. And I was under the mistaken impression that they would be easy to sell. It was not easy to sell. (laughs) So, but it taught me, oh my gosh, I self-taught myself so much about Mm -hmm. plot and character development. You know, I think romance novels no longer have the kind of like bad rap that they they did when I was trying to write one. Um, They've come a long way in the world. But that was a huge learning experience for me. My second, my third novel was a mystery in which mainly I found out that I am not hardwired to be a mystery novelist. (laughs) That it requires a certain kind of like logic Mm -hmm. and, and also darkness that I can't quite access. I'm just saying it out loud. And then, and then I wrote two young adult novels and one of them was a paranormal and one of them was like a contemporary because I was very immersed in the world of YA for a little while. I ran a literary journal and and you wrote a whole advice book on writing for younger authors. That's so great. And the cover is so cool, by the way. It's like this loud mouth, like very good. Yeah. I think I might get it from my kids. I have 16-year-old um, kids. It, it's a fun, it's a fun. Um, I'm actually on my Substack right now replying to each of the chapters in that book. Oh, that's interesting. I published it 10 years ago. It's shocking. Hmm. And one of the things that I think is valuable about that book to en- to anyone, young writers or old writers, is I wrote it before I had sold a novel. Hmm. So it, it's very much from the perspective. It's like a writing memoir. It's like a bird by bird, you know, Annie Lamott type of book, but without. But it's from the perspective of someone who hasn't quote made it yet. And I think that's that that perspective is is valuable for people as they're kind of like trying to see their way through the weeds of the writing life. Interesting. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So you're in Massachusetts. I've heard that there you know, in the Boston area, particularly, there's this big community of writers and people who have really been helping each other out. Tell me about how your writing community has has helped you. Well, so my first writer friends in this area were young adult 
folks. So actually, and two, and they're two of my best writing friends and early critique partners still. A woman named Diana Wren and another woman named um, Kip Wilson. And they they also both worked on the literary journal staff with me for many years. And so we're we're really tight. And now, you know, once I kind of entered the world of historical fiction, now I've gotten to know all kinds of new and interesting people. Jane Healy, who wrote The Beantown Girls, among other novels, lives nearby. Ginny Pye, who's got a novel, The Literary Undoing of, I think it's Vanessa Swan, is coming out really soon. There's all kinds of people here. And, you know, and and contemporary novelists, too. I actually did, when I did the Grace Kelly book, I was paired by a, a wonderful local bookstore with Laura Zygman, oh. who wrote... Have you yeah. had her on the show? Yeah, several she times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so she writes contemporaries. Mm-hmm. So they kind of, they put me as this historical novel novelist and her as this contemporary writer together for this like lovely evening kind of dinner dinner with the writers thing, and we just had the best conversation. She had just come out with Separation Anxiety, which mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I'm I'm sitting as I'm talking to you, I'm sitting here petting my dog. Oh yeah, my dog. Oh, she's downstairs, but yeah, usually my dog's right behind me. <laughs> so are you are you right now in Southern California? Right now I'm in New York. No, my okay. kids go to school here. My little kids, at least, they're not so little. But I, yeah, I'm here most of the time. But okay, because I, well, I've watched your, you know, your opening of your bookstore in Santa Monica with great interest because oh. my, I grew up in California. That's right. I read them. My family all lives now in Orange County. Got it. Yes, Irvine. Red, you you always consider yourself a California girl or something like that, right? <laughs> I do. Where did you grow up? I grew up right here in New York, a couple oh, blocks York. away. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're a real New Yorker. <laughs> I am a real New Yorker, native New Yorker. But I really feel like I would be living anywhere I grew up. Like I'm here because it's my home, not because it's New yeah. York. No. Oh, right. I get you know that. I mean, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So that must, that's what makes it hard to leave even when <laughs> I feel like perhaps we should. But Yeah. Well, I lived six wonderful years in Brooklyn and I wouldn't, it was lovely to be young in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. I lived downtown when I was younger in New York. So I feel like I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for a little bit at least. What are you working on now? So I am at the very early stages of novel number five, historical novel number five. It's going to be, the working title is Summer of Love, and it's a dual timeline novel set in California in the 1960s and the 2010s. So going back to that idea of new challenges, you know, really different dual timelines, a little bit of contemporary mixed in with my historical, and it's about a family who owns a winery and the early part of the novel is set against the backdrop of the counterculture revolution in San Francisco. So, you know, Summer of Love is that. So I was under the mistaken impression for a long time that the Summer of Love, that that term referred yep. to 1969, but it's yeah. actually 1967 hmm. when there was an there was it started with Vietnam War protests in San Francisco, actually in the spring. And it became this incredible like con- like set of concerts in the Haight-Ashbury that summer. Of 1967. I so, thought it was 69 too. So who, I mean, look at that. I got some history in here today. And you know. the history in the book. <laughs> That's why we do it. <laughs> are there, are there other people that you want to profile or like little dim ideas sort of like, you know, that you keep tossing around? There must be tons. You Big know, <laughs> there, yeah, there's one that I feel too superstitious to talk about, but yeah. that's, you know, I think every every writer, I, I, I floated this idea to my agent once and she was like, she sort of sighed and she was like, 
every writer has one of these ideas, <laughs> you know, that like, we're just kind of like, it's like, it's too big to describe. Mm-hmm. We haven't, and we haven't figured out how to describe it, but it's been, we, it's, we've been carrying it around with us for decades. <laughs> so I have one of those, mm-hmm. but otherwise, you know, I've been really lucky. Like, I mean, since, I mean, I have those five unpublished novels, so I got those out of my system. I got those characters out of my system. You know, I got, I've gotten to write about you know, three amazing real life women and now this set of characters. And as difficult as it was to make these women up out of, you know, thin air, I think that's that's where I'm going for now. I'm not, I'm not kind of tossing around many other like biographical sort of novel topics right now. And that's my dog. <laughs> you know, so many writers are doing it so well. Like so many like fabulous women have been written mm-hmm. about. So we'll see, but you never know. Life is long and we read and we get inspired by the strangest things. Like, you know, all you have to do is call came from an, a news story I listened yeah. to. So who knows where the next idea is going to come from. That's right. So you have to sort of just like be out and about. Like the best things are not at your desk. You know, you just got to like get out there, I think. So wait, tell me just a little bit more about your writing process and where you like to work. Like, are you at your desk now where you get your writing done or do you like, what's no. the process? No. Okay. No, this is, this is my zoom place. I'm okay. like in a chair with like a TV tray, believe it or okay. not. With a <laughs> um, Cause I really like doing things in front it's of It's gorgeous. TV. That was the cover of the Paris bookseller. Yep. So, and this, and I'm very comfortable here, but no, so I, I kind of move around. I've got a, I live in a pretty small condo. So like I have a, like a, a secretary desk in my bedroom. It's, it's big which I bought with the idea that I could close it. Mm, yep. Just look at the dresser. Do yes. I ever close it? No. <laughs> but anyway, that I do some. I do a lot of my writing there. Sometimes I write at my kitchen table and sometimes I write at my couch, on my couch, which is to my right. But as I get older, the couch is less and less of a good idea. My back is not super, super happy with that choice. So, but, and I, and I'm really a morning writer. I'm not an early morning writer. I need to like sort of get up and caffeinated and get the dog walked. But I try to use those first two or three hours of the day to actually get the writing done. It's very hard for me to do, to to push it to the rest of the day. I have discovered, and I want to know your answer to this question too, because you are juggling a lot. (laughs) But one of the things I've learned about myself repeatedly, as if like I forget and I have to relearn it, is that if I let everything else expand to fill the day, it will the Mm -hmm. emails, the parenting, the teaching, whatever, all the things. Suddenly it's 7 p.m. and I haven't done any writing and I'm definitely not going to write after 7 p.m. Whereas if I actually clear the deck and just say, you know, 9 a.m. to noon is for writing, period, like, and put my blinders on, magically everything else does actually get done. Yes. (laughs) Sometimes I don't get to the gym, but pretty much everything can still get done. So how do you do it? Um... Well, I've only written one novel while I've been doing all the other 8 million things I'm doing. And I literally had to take time, like days away. Like I had to get out of my environment. Like I had a much harder time doing that than any other kind of writing, which I do like and anywhere around the kids, on a plane, in the doctor's room, you know, whatever. But for fiction, I had to be like, I'm taking this day and yeah. I couldn't even just take a morning. Like, I don't know. I had to take a couple times, bigger chunks of time. And then I caught up the next day or I caught up that night. But I, I, I like you. I can't do anything at night. I'm sort of useless except for emails. Yeah. But yeah, I don't yeah. know. 
but it, yeah, you have to, I have to set it on a calendar and see it, yes. and see the blank space yes. there so that I know I have the room to like, you know, take a break and come back and take a break, you know, but Yes. I, I put it in my calendar too. If it's not in my calendar, then I haven't really committed to it. Yes. So which is why I, I don't get to the gym anymore. <laughs> I know, you know, like we can't actually do it all. You know, that actually is apropos of this novel. I wanted to know if, you know, this idea of like women doing it all, mm -hmm. like could I, could I use that phrase mm -hmm. and have, and have it have, but no, that phrase didn't come into the public sort of public consciousness until the eighties, the 1980s. Wow. So that idea of women trying to have it all was later than this book. Interesting. Well, maybe that was better. <laughs> so they've already been trying. That, yeah. I mean, I'm just like planting that seed there for people who are going to read the book that they, they can know that that phrase did not exist for these characters. Interesting. So what is your, I know we've already talked about great advice and already, but if you had to leave listeners with some parting advice for aspiring authors in particular, what would it be? Find your people. That's the thing that I tell everybody. I mean, really the biggest difference anything has really made along the way for me is having other writer friends at different stages of their careers, you know, sort of people who are further along who could be kind of mentors to me, but also, and really importantly, having people, peer friends mm -hmm. who were slogging it out with me, who could you know, I can text them or call them when I got a rejection that particularly hurt, who would swap manuscripts with me and give me comments and I would give them comments, you know, just all the things writer writers do for each other at every step of the process. And now I'm really lucky. I have a whole, you know, I have writers all over the country who I, all I have to do is call them. Oh, I love it. <laughs> You should start like a like a phone tree called All You Have to Do is Call with like authors who agree to be on call for like aspiring author questions. Like you should do an All You Have to Do is Call day of like aspiring authors and get recruit all sorts of published authors to be there for like a hotline. What a great idea. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be so fun. Yeah. Yes. I all right. The whole I can see the whole branding with this whole cover look and feel and all that. Yes. Yes. Well, there was a part, there was a moment when we were talking about covers. I was like, couldn't we have a phone on it? You know, the, with mm. a long cord never worked out. Yeah. And I love the cover. Lo I, mean, I, wouldn't I love the cover too. It's really great. World. Carrie, this was so fun. Thank you so much for okay. chatting. And yeah, I hope to meet you in real life. <laughs> absolutely love that. Thank you again for having me on the show. My pleasure. All right. Have a great day. You Bye. too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. 
add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.